0: Good morning. Good morning. Woohoo! Where were you at prayer? (laughs) The rest of us were falling asleep. We needed that energy to get us going. (laughs) That wasn't a dig. Well, morning. um, Yeah, just be praying. As Kim said, there's a few people a little bit on the sick end, and so you might want to be a little cautious. We don't know. you don't know who's carrying what, so if, you, uh, if you're immunocompromised or a little bit worried, I'd get your mask on. and if you've been around someone that has uh, been exposed or you've been exposed, you might want to mask up just to protect some of the people round about. Um, our family was off ill, so we will be masked up. Uh, we were one of the Kuti families, so fortunately, we're all good. So this morning we're launching into a new series, and I'm excited. I like new series. Uh, I like the Bible, if you haven't noticed. Um, and so today we're going to jump into a series looking at Zechariah. And there's several, several reasons why we're heading here. So uh, first of all, just, just for a little bit of context, like we value the Word of God, and so we're going to preach it. right? So that's reason number one. We're going to preach the Bible because we know it's the Word of Life, and we want to have the Word of Life in us. Um, number two was, as I've been looking over the last several years of sermon series... Um, as a church, we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament and not a whole lot of time in the Old Testament. So I figure it's about time we jump back there and get into some of the good stuff. And so when we're going to get into some of the good stuff, what did I decide to do? I decided to go where it's really crazy. And let's start there. So I'm hoping for most of the people in the room when I'm think when it's like, oh, Zechariah, you're like, I know where it is. But that's a bit it, right? Um, So that's exciting because that means we all get to learn together and hopefully we'll leave knowing one of these minor prophets uh, a little bit better. And then lastly, uh, why are we doing this? I think you're going to find some really striking similarities between uh, the people that Zechariah is addressing and where we are at in the period of the life and development of this church as we're trying to recover who God's called us to be, get back on board with the mission of God and be more active and effective in his kingdom. Zechariah is going to speak powerfully right into the middle uh, of, of who we are and what we're doing. Um, Zechariah is one of these books. Um, if you if you go on and read about it, people call it the mini Isaiah. So, people are usually a lot more with Isaiah and all the prophecies in there about Jesus, all of the ways the gospel is described in there. So, rather than 66 chapters, Zechariah is like the 14 chapter version mini summary of Isaiah. So, so people will call it mini Isaiah. Why? Rich with the gospel. So many uh, descriptions of Jesus or things that the gospels later attribute to Jesus. And actually, when you look especially at the passion narratives, so the parts of the gospels that look in the life uh, or or the death of of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. If you look at that part of scripture in particular, it quotes from Zechariah like crazy. And actually the the gospel writers quote from Zechariah, actually all of the New Testament quotes from Zechariah more than all of the other minor prophets combined. Uh, And so pay attention in your footnotes when you're reading, there's all of these little footnotes to Zechariah all the way through. And as I said, the context is very similar. And we're going to take some time to to look at what that context is and why I think this book is going to be really meaningful for us. But a few background pieces before we start. um, Just get us in mind with what's going on and who this person is. So first of all, Zechariah is a a Hebrew name. Does anyone know what it means? Yahweh remembers. So just remember, whenever you're reading a name in Scripture and it ends with Yah, or quite often Ah, That is shorthand for Yahweh. And the word zakar is the word remember. And so this whole book is labeled. So when Jewish people are reading this this scroll, when they pull it out to read it, and they say, We're reading from the prophet Zechariah, they hear, We're reading from the prophet Yahweh remembers. Um, so, So they have more of these meanings in the background of their mind. And it's important to understand when we're looking at the word zakar, which means to remember, this is not God forgot. And therefore, he's now remembering something long forgotten. Uh, when we're talking about God remembering in Scripture, it really is referring to him bringing back to the focus of his mind and his action something usually that he's covenanted to do. So he remembers his people or he remembers his covenant or he remembers their plight. It's not that he forgot his people or his covenant or their plight. He just chooses to focus on it and allows it to shape his actions. So everything about this, this little book By the prophet Zechariah is all about recalling and and God stating that he's bringing to mind the covenant that he's made and the things that he's promised and that if his people will do what God has told them to do then all of the promises associated with that covenant will come true the book is split into two so this is this is like this we're we're, we're at school for a little moment okay you got to humor me it's the introduction we got to get the background information in so if you go home tonight and you read the book of Zechariah from beginning to end, it doesn't take very long, but you already did that, right? Because I said it last week, so everyone read it this week. No. <laughs> so it's, it's <laughs> split into, it's, you'll notice it's split into two very distinct pieces. So the first eight chapters... Um, are these visions that are just crazy, wacky, zany. So what happens, and, and really chapters one through six, there is one night. All these chapters happen in one night, and in this one night, Zechariah has eight kind of dream visions while he's sleeping. Um, that make up the content of this and so we're going to look week by week at each of these eight visions and all of their crazy symbols and like all of the context and what the heck do these things mean if you've read it already in prep for today you know you're looking going how are we going to make any sense of this stuff women in baskets, horns all over the place, olive trees and lamps and lights and, and whatever so we're going to dig into this and, and it's, it's a really really beautiful beautiful content uh, that speaks of God's hope for us as a church and what it looks like for us to walk in his way. So you've got these eight chapters of, of visions, um, and then you've got these the last half of the book, like 9 through 14, are these oracles, or these declarations directly from God to uh, his people. Um, and so the book is split up, and, and why I, I say this, if you were to pick up a commentary and read, so, so first of all, if you read the book, you'll notice it, but if you pick up a commentary and read, um, Chapters all happen, well, the first six chapters happen in one night. Chapter 7 starts with a declaration of another date that's a little bit later, and so chapters 1 through 8 happen in very close proximity. Chapters 9 through 14, a lot of commentators wonder if Zechariah even wrote this part or if someone after him recorded the things that he said and put them down. So there's, there's a clear distinction in the Hebrew. At the end of the day, Zacharias content, the visions he had and the oracles he's spoken were compiled together into two separate halves that make up this book and they're put together in a way that bring a lot of clarity to the message that he wants to bring to his people and the message that he's gonna to bring to us. So so you're going to see that division, so we're going to spend the first chunk of time just looking at these visions, and then there's going to be this clear transition that happens in chapter 9, and then he's going to start talking about this messianic shepherd-king leader that's going to come in the kingdom that he's going to bring, and you're going to start seeing all of these allusions to things you're aware of in the gospel, and you're going to see things and go, I didn't even know that the gospel writer was quoting Zechariah at that point, but now I see where it came from. Um, so, so we're going to dig in, we're going to enjoy it, and it's going to be crazy and wacky. So next, next part of, of context, I want to put up this timeline, because I want us to situate ourselves in where we're at in the biblical story. And so there's going to be an exam on this at the end. You've got to replicate this table from memory. No. <laughs> So you don't need to know everything that's up here, but this is just to frame where we are and to help you understand what's going on. So this is a timeline. Those uh, colored blocks are all of the prophets. So the ones in orange are the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. The others are primarily all the minor prophets, but you've got Elijah and Elisha up there in the top left, just so you can situate it in the story. Um, so, if you go to the left of this chart, before 900 is when King David is on the throne. So, if you're not familiar, you read Kings and Chronicles, and they're going to give you the story uh, of the ruling uh, process over Israel and Judah. So, they're going to outline all of the the royal lineage that happens through Israel's history. Scattered in amongst the different kings that are there, God calls these various prophets to bring messages, some to Israel, some to Judah, and some to outside nations. Um, But these prophets are interspersed with the kings that we read about in Scripture. So when you're reading about King David, you're reading about King Solomon, uh, King Josiah, these, these characters all have prophets round about them. And so what you've got up here, right at the top, is the, the world powers that exist at the time that these events are happening. So we, we know from the Bible story that Egypt is at some point a superpower. We know the story of, of Moses rescuing people out of Egypt. We know the story of the Exodus and the importance of that. But what we sometimes uh, forget is that there are other Powers that are warring over the middle uh, the Middle East at this this particular point in history. So Egypt is ruling. All of a sudden, in comes the Assyrian Empire. They conquer Egypt and they rule the whole area. A few. Uh, Chunks of years later, Babylon comes in, and Babylon, who uh, is, is this key figure in Scripture, takes over from Assyria, and then later on, you've got this Medo-Persian empire that takes over from Babylon. So you can see up there, there's this movement of power shifting within the Middle East, and when the power shifts, it impacts what's going on in Israel, and then it impacts the message that God's people end up having to bring. Um, Key things up here, you've got this gray strip that says the 70-year captivity. So as the story goes, uh, God calls Abraham and he brings them into covenant relationship with him. He gives, a, he gives the law through Moses and he makes this, this commitment to them. I promise to be your God and to guard you and bring you peace and bless you and bless all the nations of the world through you if you will uphold my covenant. And here's the things that you're going to be required to do. And so he outlines the law and the covenant and the way that Israel is supposed to live to be distinct from the other nations in order to prove that they're willing to uphold the covenant that God has kept. And so we've got this story of Israel being given the law and then all of the failures that they have to, to, to uphold that law. And we go through the, 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 we go through Moses, we get to Joshua, we go all the way through to Samuel, uh, and, and all of a sudden, the nation of Israel starts to significantly tank. You move into the book of Judges, and Israel is like just running after other gods they 're chasing foreign women, they are distorting everything about what God says, and God starts allowing enemy nations to come in and overthrow them. So, so the, most of the Old Testament story is Israel rejecting the covenant with God. Uh, and experiencing the curse and consequence of the law, that means the the big promise is, if you disobey the stuff, I'm going to kick you out of the land, and you're not going to get all of these promises that I've made for you. Um, So in this biblical story, you've got the, the By 900, David is on the throne just prior to that. He is one king ruling the nation. As you move on, King Solomon, his son takes the throne and during his reign, the kingdom divides. And so you get the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and they're not talking to each other and they don't like each other. And then as it goes on, the nation just gets more and more corrupt. Kings are leading Israel further and further away from God. And all the way through, God is raising up these prophets with one singular message at the end of the day, you've lost sight of the covenant, return to God, uphold your end of the covenant, and these things uh, that you're experiencing and these negative consequences will go away. All the way through, the, the, the warning is, if you don't uphold this covenant, you will be exiled. And so you have uh, Assyria becomes the dominant power. Israel is rejecting God. If you go into 2 Kings, like 15, 16, 17, you're going to see the story as uh, Assyria comes in and they conquer Israel. And so they take the 10 tribes of Israel and they exile them out of the land and God preserves the people of Judah in the middle of it. In that time, Samaria, which is kind of the, there's there's two, uh, what's the word I want? Capital cities. At this point, Samaria is the capital city of Israel, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, and Jerusalem is the capital city of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so you've got this thing going on, um, but, but Judah's here, the ten tribes of Israel. Samaria gets destroyed and sacked by Assyria, and most of those people get led off into captivity. Fast forward a little bit, they continue to rebel, and now not only are the ten tribes of Israel rebelling, but the tribe of Judah is, is massively corrupt and walking away from God. And so Babylon then comes in, and God uses Babylon to capture uh, the, the tribe of Judah and send them off into Israel. And so you have this period where Israel and Judah are now in captivity. The curse that they have dreaded is happening. Uh, and, and they're looking, going, we've, we've screwed up. But actually... Some of them think that, most of them are quite happy. They go off, if you think I've been shipped to another land for 70 years, you get quite comfortable, right? You, you, you settle in, you marry people, you have a family, you build a business, uh, you start living life. And so they're living in exile, in uh, light of everything that God promised them to bring. And so Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the three on the, the right-hand side of the screen, these three prophets fit together, and they are called the post-exilic prophets. So these are prophets that God is calling after the 70-year exile is finished. He's bringing this message through these three people about what it looks like to get back into the land, to, to reignite the covenant, to re-pick up the things that God has promised, that God is not finished doing what he said he would do, that, again, if you would just do what he's asked— then everything will be put right. So, I mean, this chart, there's lots up there. The rise and fall of empires, the exile and the return from exile. You can read about that in Kings and Chronicles. And you can read it in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, at the point that we're coming into this story with Zechariah, Zechariah, um, <clears throat> Haggai has already prophesied to them and and people have been sent back to the land. We're gonna look at the scripture in a little second. The people are being sent back to Jerusalem with the instruction to build the temple. And so Haggai sends uh, a few people back to the land and they're gonna begin this building process. And as they get back, they realize, hey, this land isn't as nice as we thought it was. After 70 years unattended, uh, this land is messy. There are other people that the Assyrians, Babylonians settled in our property, and we've now got to deal with these people that shouldn't be there that have stolen our possessions and their mind. And then there's persecution from outside agencies, that the people round about, you idiots, why do you think you can build the temple? So they're sent back to start building. Hey guys, encouraging them, hey, build the temple, lay the foundation. And they do this work of laying the foundation of the temple, and that work gets completed. And then, I don't know if this will be familiar to anybody in here, but then there's this period where the foundation is laid, but there's about a 14-year gap between the foundation being laid and them actually starting the work of constructing the structure. If you weren't around here, this building we're in was started, what, 28 years ago and finished 8 years ago. It was a labor of love and a lot of contention, a lot of prayer and heartache went into this building. But there was a work that was started and then a long period where it didn't come to fruition. And there was a lot of work and and heart and energy and and re-envisioning that went to getting this building finished. And so really the, the characters that Zechariah are about to talk to are a lot like this church. They started the building process. They got discouraged and things weren't going the way they wanted. And then God had to come in with the second messenger, Zechariah. So Haggai says, start building. Zechariah comes in and says, don't give up. Keep going. God will see this through to the end. And I think this is going to be really important for us because we can look back on the building of this structure that we're in. We can even look at where we're at right now as a church. We're in this process, these three years that we've been doing this late foundation laying period. And the foundations are, there's foundations laid. Now what happens is, as we're looking ahead to what's coming, there are moments that are going to come where we'll feel discouraged. Things won't go the way we want. Things like COVID hit and ruin the plans that we're trying to build. Um, And so you have, it's possible to get discouraged, to feel a loss of momentum, just like they did. So Zechariah's message is going to come in and say, the foundation has been built. Things are not always going to go the way you want them to, but hang in there, because if you continue to fix your eyes on him, then he is going to do the things that he has promised. And so I want to w- walk through this book thinking historically about Israel, thinking historically about this church, and then taking his words and saying, what does this mean for us right now as foundations are relayed, and then we're in this process where we're going to try and build on top of this. Um, let's not lose heart and press on. So I want to jump back to Second Chronicles 36, if you have your Bible turned there. I just want to read the words of Scripture that give us where we're at in the story when Zechariah comes into the scene. So this is Second Chronicles 36, starting in, in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them. So this is the, the, the leaders, the priests, and the people of the tribe of Judah. Um, He sent this word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. God can use external forces and external nations who don't walk with him to accomplish his will. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword and the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave all of them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar the king. He carried to Babylon all the articles of the temple Of of God, both large and small, and all the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, they burned all the palaces, and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, to so see the change of government, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, So Jeremiah is speaking the word of God. God is using a non-God-following nation to fulfill his word. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up And may the Lord their God be with them. You see what's happened? Like the people of Israel built a temple. They disobeyed the God that they were supposed to serve. They gave up the covenant. An enemy nation came in, routed the city, tore down the temple, set on fire, tore down the walls of the city. The palaces set aflame, burned it all up. And God uses someone that's not one of his people to come in and build himself a new temple in the middle. You know, if you don't do the work that God is calling you to do, if you don't walk in obedience and submission to him, he can use anyone to do the work that you were supposed to do. Do we want to be like the people of Israel, where God is working around us and using forces that are even opposed to him to bring about the things that he wanted us to do? Let's not be like the nation of Israel. So that's all context to try and bring us up to speed. I'll send out um, the Bible project video is great, I'll send out some information this week that, that you can read to do a little bit of extra digging in the background, but with all the context, I want to jump into the beginning of Zechariah, that was just reminding us where we're at in the story, um, and so don't worry, I'm just, this is going to be short, and <laughs> people are like, oh my goodness, that was just the intro. Um, <laughs> So let's jump in so these people they've started with high hopes they've gotten discouraged zechariah's words come in so remember this is for us specifically in this season of the life of our church but then for us generally as we face the challenges of this day and age so let's let's read this zechariah 1 1 through 6 says in the eighth month of the second year of darius the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, God remembers, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented... And said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and our practices deserve, just as He determined to do. First verse, interesting about Zechariah. When we're reading books in the Bible, when you're looking at commentaries, there's a lot of discussion around when the the books were written, when they existed. Zechariah is one of the clearest books to be able to date because of the historical evidence and the clarity of the dating that's in here. So I just want to show you something as we start. So this is verse one. Um, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So this is October or November, 520 B.C. So you got to remember when we start using dates and we're using BC, we're in negative numbers. So smaller is more recent. Um, uh, when you're in the next week, as we look at it, one verse seven, on the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. So we know when Darius was on the throne. There's lots of historical evidence. So we can look and say, what was the 24th day of the 11th month of the second year of his reign? And we can say, This happened on February 15th, 519 B.C. So we can get exact. This is not like random Bible information that we're conjecturing. This is like historical information. Um, Again, uh, as the book shifts in in chapter 7, December 7th, uh, 518 B.C. So we've got some things happening each year. There's a little bit of a progression as this is being revealed. Um, and when these events happen. So I just wanted to put dates in our head. This is historical fact that we can put in historical context. So back to the passage, Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. In the eighth month this happens, uh, this is the message that was given. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what God says. Return to me, and I will return to you. You've seen the results of my anger with your ancestors. They didn't do the things that they they were asked to do. They didn't do the things they covenanted to do. And so I did what I promised to do. Which was, if they rejected me, they would experience the consequence of the curse. And that wrath has been poured out over the people who have been exiled from the land. So you're experiencing the consequence of your ancestors' behavior. They've been rejected. This is the instruction. We're going to come back to this at, like, right at the end. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Don't be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed turn from your evil ways and practices, but they would not listen. Then he asked this question, where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So I want to put this question up here. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? When he's asking these questions, the answers are implied. So we don't always understand when we're reading this. You want to move on? There's a slide that just has this on it, Aaron. Um, so the, the answers are implied. We don't always take the time to figure out what the answer is or, or what the person is trying to say. So Zechariah asks this question. Where are your ancestors now? The prophets do they live forever. What he's saying is look at where you are at. You're living in exile. Your ancestors all the way back then have been rejecting the Lord, and the consequence of their rejection exists today. So where are they? They're all gone, but you're living in the consequence of their actions. Likewise, the prophets spoke all those years ago, and the effect of their words is still in existence today. So he's comparing the actions that disobeyed, that brought the curse, and the promises that were given through the prophets that still remain. So if, if a curse could happen in the past, and you can be living in those consequences today, a promise given in the past is still available to you today. So this is why he's trying to let them know. Where are they? Where are your ancestors? Where are the prophets? You're experiencing and sitting in the heritage of both of those things. And at a church like this, we, we're in the same situation. We're sitting in the positive and negative heritage of ancestors within this church and within the communities and in our faith journeys, but we also sit in the heritage and and in the potentiality of all of the things God has promised in the past and all of the specific things that he has spoken to you as members of the church in the past, things that he's prophesied about this church, promises he's given us about what will happen. So just as you've been through a desolate season as a church where you've you've felt the negativity of past actions we're now sitting in a place where we're saying, let's reap the promises and the blessing that comes from all of the good things that God has been saying up till now. He uses this phrase, but did not my words and my decrees overtake your ancestors? There's this beautiful uh, motif all through Scripture when it says God's word, the word devar, is not just the things that he speaks, but that word in Scripture is usually personified. So like God's Word, it speaks, it acts, it moves, it it softens hearts, it refines. And in this instance, it can overtake someone. So it's outlasted all of these people who thought they knew what they were being called to do. So God's Word will outlast. It will outlast every person sitting in this room. When we're dead and gone, God's Word will continue. The promises that He's made to the church, the promises that He makes to this group of people will long outlast us if we walk in the ways that he's calling us to walk. So I want to spend the rest of this time just looking at the word repent and this call that is in here and what, what it means for us. So let me, yeah, let me just throw up the word and then we'll go back and look at it. We're familiar when we hear a phrase like Turn, return to me and I will return to you turn from evil things and come back. When we start using a word like repentance, uh, we tend to, if you've been around the church, you get really familiar with the New Testament concept of repentance, which is the word metanoia, which means to change your thinking. So you've probably heard someone say that, you know, repentance is like to change your thinking. Um, When you're looking at the Old Testament, and they're using the word here for turn or return or repent, it literally is the word to turn around. So it's not just about changing something in your thinking, it is about changing the whole orientation of your life. Um, And so that's why they quite often use the word, instead of the word repent, the translations you'll look at, they'll use turn or return or repent. And so I want to look at just this phrase, turn. It says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. So I'm going to say, what I'm going to say now should be common knowledge to all of us. And I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping, right? I'm hoping we're sitting here going, ugh, Like he's going to talk about repentance, like back to Bible 101, I'm hoping. That's what you're feeling right now, because it means this is familiar, and it should be. And then we can smack each other around with what it actually involves. Uh, So if you look at this passage, there's two elements to it. There's the turning to, so God has turned to me. So part of repentance is the conscious choice that we're returning to him. But then there's the negative or or the negatively framed side of it is turn away from. So you're going to turn to me and you're in the process. You're going to turn away from your evil practices and your evil ways. And and those two things fit together, right? If you are doing something that you shouldn't and you decide in the middle of it to turn to God, um, then you're, you're simultaneously turning away from the things that God has called us to do. What happens in our lives with repentance is we say, you know, I repented. I said, God, I'm never, I'm never going to hold a grudge like that again. The whole time we're clinging on to a grudge, right? So we're, we're seeing with our mouth and, and, and telling people, like, I'm in the process of repentance, but the whole time I'm fixated on the things that I did and have done and will continue to do. Um, And so one of the ways you can tell if you've truly turned toward him in an act of repentance is that you're no longer looking at, holding on to, or fixating on the evil ways and evil practices um, that, that caused us to turn away from him. Let me put up a quote here by a great scholar who's got a wonderful book on the minor prophets. He says this, Turn to me is Yahweh's gracious call to his people. Prophetic religion is not legalistic, so God's not calling them to a bunch of actions. The object of people's spiritual renewal is Yahweh, who loves, remains faithful, eschews evil, and requires loyalty. In repentance, they would find respite from their miserable condition. One thing stood between them and destruction a willingness to turn from the ways that had brought their fathers into exile and turn to a gracious God. So when we're reading these parts of Scripture, we're like, you're idiots, right? We look at them, we think you're idiots. It's so clear. All you need to do is turn, follow in the footsteps of your forefather David, and everything will go, well, why are you following Ahab's footsteps or Manasseh's footsteps? Stop it, you idiots. Like that's, but that's the way we live our lives. This invitation to repentance is not so much stop what you're doing, it's not live your life the right way. It's an invitation to return to him. It's an invitation to relationship, to recover his presence. So he says, turn to me and I will turn to you. So I want to just share a couple of things about this and how I think it applies to where we're at right now. The fruit we're seeing in repentance, we should see its fruit evidenced in our actions. So if we are walking in repentance, we should see a, a cessation of something that goes against the way God wants it to be, and we should see an increase of our desire for Him and and the things that that He wants for us. In this season in the life of the church, we are seeing this. Have you put this framework in mind when you think about what's happening in church right now? The fruit that we are seeing of transformation and new life is the fruit of repentance. you entered into a process when elders said, we're going to go in humility to the district and ask if we can go into redevelopment. We're going to bring an outside agency in to assess our church and show us where we're going wrong. And when they said, here's the places where you're falling short as a church, and you said, okay, let's work on this. Some people left and said, I'm not willing to work on that. Some people left because God was calling them to other places. Some people stayed and said, I'm going to dig in with every ounce of my being to correct and repent of these practices that are wrong. And I'm pretty sure there's probably some people here that decided to stick around and just stay in the same mindset anyway, right? Because we're human and that happens, right? Um, having jumped into redevelopment, it was a decision to repent of the old way. And what was it they said? That What were the three big, broad brushstrokes? They said, you turned inward, You become not God-focused in decision making, and and we're conflict-averse. And so, the repentance process was: How do we focus outward? Uh, How do we learn to seek God better in the decisions that we make? How do we step uh, into biblical conflict resolution? The fruit that we are seeing just now is the fruit of your repentance. Like I want to, I'm hoping you're getting that, and I want to, I want you to applaud yourself for that. Like. This is not Scott came in and fixed the church. This is you have been doing a digging in work to repent of a pattern that wasn't evil and, and like walk in and complete rebellion to God, but just wasn't what he wanted for his church. Your decision to repent of that has brought fruit, but there is more to be done and there is more repentance to walk in because repentance is not a one-time event. It's the posture with which we're supposed to engage our relationship with Jesus every moment of every day. Because if repentance is a turning away from the things of the world to fix our eyes on him, every moment of our day, every second of our day is an invitation to turn the world and fix our eyes back on him. It's an opportunity to respond to the invitation to, to, to relationship, return to me, return to me, and I will return to you. And I I get nervous because I look at the start of the year and I look at what God has been doing. I look at what happened in the prayer room. You know, did you realize the prayer room was an expression of repentance? If I ask the question, how many people spent more time praying that week than they normally do? and everyone last time put their hands up, we made a decision to turn from things in the world that usually consume our time to fix our eyes on him. Like, just walking into the prayer room was an act of repentance, and for many of you, when you walked in there, you engaged stations that were about repentance, and you experienced a freedom as you laid things down to Him. So, that that was a movement of repentance. We come out of that, and we're continuing to see the fruit as lives are being turned to Him, as new fire has been poured out on people. But here's what scares me, It's easy to have some fruit start, the church grows, there's energy, things are going the way we want, and then we just kind of settle back in to, we've got this, we know our way, we can do this without them, let's applaud ourselves for making this change happen, and we're so amazing. Um, And that will happen in all of us at various points over the coming years because that's just our, the way our sin nature draws us back down into that place of settling and, and, and self-reflection and self-preservation. But we don't want to be there. And so I'm thinking ahead to things that are coming up as things don't go the way that, God, that, that, that we're envisioning, uh, as outside forces come in and influence what we're trying to do, um, as, as things are just discouraging. Because it will come. Um, are we going to be people that are going to give in to it, and we're going to stop building? We're going to be people that are going to cultivate the posture of repentance that says, "I'm going to keep pressing in so that I can see the fruit that I want to have happen here." Let me let me make this a little bit more practical. What does repentance look like? What are some of the things that I'm thinking about? So th- there's there's some individual repentance that we've got to do. Um, let me make it really personal. Let me talk about me. I look at my life, and one of the things that, well, there's, there's lots of things that have marked my life. Two of the ones that go to the top of the list are pride and selfish ambition. So I like to think I'm awesome. And when you affirm that, my head can swell. Uh, I find very challenging the scripture that says... In humility, consider others better than yourself. I like to think I know more and can do it better. And so, so pride is an issue that I've wrestled with. Repentance for me is a constant process of considering others better than myself. It's a constant process of saying, I still have things to learn. I've not arrived. There are other people that know more than me, that are more mature than me. Um, it's the choice not to celebrate my accomplishments and to engage them in secret. The other one is selfish ambition. It's so easy for me. I have dreams and visions, and sometimes my journal is filled with this. God, is this your plan or is this mine? Am I building your kingdom or am I building mine? And so a huge part of the apprentice process for me is, hey, God, there's this thing I'm really excited about, and it looks really awesome, but I actually think I'm doing it for me and not for you. And so I probably need to say no to those things right now. I probably need to turn down that opportunity because it's my ambition that's driving me there, rather than your voice and the encouragement of the people around about me. And then I could add a third, well, the category lusts of the flesh. It's funny how when you buy a house, all of a sudden you have all these things that you want that you didn't want before. New paint, new kitchen, new bathroom, new bed, new floors, new ceilings, new house. It's like how, look, looking online the other day. Well, maybe we could sell this and buy a bigger one. Like d- just that materialistic lust of the flesh process that I walk in, and we all have things. When it comes to stewarding what God is doing in our church, is going to require your repentance. What will it look like? Do you remember the biblical truth that your sin affects the whole? What you do in sin in secret affects this body, and there are. Th- God will withhold from what we want to see happen here because your sin is preventing it from being able to be here. It can be like me, materialism, selfish ambition, pride. For some people, it's your perfectionism, Uh, the the standards you hold yourself and other people to um, that are unattainable. For some people in, in this room, it's exaggeration. When you open your mouth, it's not the truth that comes out, but a distortion of the truth that paints things better or worse to make you look good. For some of us, it's, it's addictions, whether it's social media or alcohol or shopping. Um, we have these addictions that we carry that stop us being able to do the things that God wants us to do. If we're addicted to shopping, our resources are going to, to ourself rather than the things that God wants us to If it's alcohol, we're running to something that hides our emotional condition rather than running into it and allowing God uh, to minister to us For some in the room, it's a victim mindset. We're addicted to realizing that we're the victim and that everyone else is to blame. And if they can just sort out their stuff, then life will be better. And we need to repent and say, I'm going to take ownership of the fact that I'm not the victim in this. For some people, it's bitterness. You're still holding grudges. It doesn't need to be about the church. But in your life, there are people that you're not willing to walk in forgiveness with. When someone says their name, you're quick to tear them down or point out the flaw. When, when someone says something nice about them, your gut response is to say the opposite. You've got to learn to walk in forgiveness. If we're a church that walks in bitterness, we will not be able to experience the fullness of the grace that God wants us to have. For some of, it, we, some of us, we could call it clinging to religion. We have ways that we like church to be. We have ways that we like this community to be. You have experiences in other churches that you've had, and you like this or don't like that, and you read those things into this room. And some of us need to repent of that and say, God, that's what this whole book's going to be about, is repenting of the religiosity in order to walk into deeper relationship and intimacy. Um, And for some of us, it's just plain, simple self-reliance. Are we as a church going to rely on ourselves our education, our abilities, our competencies, our bank balances, or are we going to rely on the one who provided all of that to us? I already alluded to our corporate repentance. We were told by Vital Church that we had to turn outward. We had to turn away from just being fixated on one another and this being. We just want church to be our people to turn outward to the people that are not like us. It's learning to seek God first and saying, yes, there may be a decision that needs to be made and it's so simple to make it and we've all got all of the qualifications to do it. That doesn't mean we can just run and make the decision. It's stopping to say, God, is this the decision you want us to make? It makes sense to us. It's learning to discern. We're gonna to have to do a lot of work as a church to, to learn how to discern and hear God's voice more clearly so that we can be more confident I don't just want it to be our leadership team that's discerning God's will and feeling confident that he's leading us in the right direction. As a church, I want us individually and corporately to feel confident that we're hearing from God and walking in his ways. And then corporately, we've got to keep leaning into conflict. How many people in here like conflict? <laughs> okay, just Seth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, none of us, right? None of us love it. Uh, And so it's our, our fallen human disposition to run from the things that are difficult. But what if for God to pour fruit over our church, you have to get into confrontation? What if for your neighbor to come to faith, you have to present the gospel when it's not comfortable to do so? What if for our church to grow and become what God wants it to be, you have to start engaging with people that are people you said I would never associate with, Because they're so far from what God wants, they're an abomination on this planet. What if we're going to have to lean into some of these conflicts in a loving way? We have to learn to walk in repentance. We've done some repenting work. Again, we're seeing the fruit of it in our church. You're seeing fruit of it in your life, but there's more to be done. Are you going to continue to walk in repentance? So... If we want to steward what God is doing, if we want to continue to see God's fruit in our life, repentance must be our posture. So I invite you to hear these words again as Zechariah, God speaking through him to Israel, speaking through Zechariah, through me, to us. God says, turn to me, and I will turn to you. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, so that he can give us the blessing that he wants to give us. So, I'm gonna pray, and then as we worship, I want you to be thinking very practically, you know, as we talk about this sort of thing, there are things come into your mind that you know are issues that you need to repent of. Um, as you give a list like that, there are ones that I didn't even mention that were coming into your mind. So, during worship, I just want you to take a moment to declare to God your repentance. Like God, I want and, and make a promise to Him. I want to continue to walk in a repentance spirit with you, so that we can continue to invite the fruit that we've been seeing, not just in this room, but as we see transformation happen in the community around, community around about us. And then, if you're really brave, and if you want to complete the process. The best way to secure that process of repentance and release grace over your life is whatever you choose to repent of is find someone you trust and let them know. And, and you will be amazed at what God does. So let, me, let me pray and then let us worship. God, this is, I mean, it's, it's heavy, but it's exciting. I mean, Zechariah is inviting us into deeper fruit He's reminding us that before we can do any of the rebuilding that that we want to do, before we can steward any of the fruit that we want to see, we have to have our hearts in the right posture. And so, God, it's not enough to say, I walk with you, so we're good. It's not enough to say that I've walked with Jesus for a while, so we're good. And it's not enough to say, I did that once when I gave my life to Jesus. God, there are things today that we need to repent of, that you want to free us of, Uh, so that we can walk more fully into the things that you have for us. So God, as we go through this series, would you teach us to walk in repentance uh, and to shed all of the things that stand in the way of you in order that we can return to you and experience you and then reveal that to the people you place around us. God, we love you and we choose to turn to you in Jesus' name.